0: Good morning, my name is Sarah. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 through 10. Now, if there are some poor persons among you, say one of your fellow Israelites in one of your cities in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor fellow Israelites. To the contrary, open your hand wide to them. You must generously lend them whatever they need, but watch yourself. Make sure no wicked thought crosses your mind, such as, the seventh year is coming, the year of debt cancellation, so that you resent your poor fellow Israelites and don't give them anything. If you do that, they will cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. No, give generously to needy persons. Don't resent giving to them, Because it is this very thing that will lead to the Lord your God's blessing you in all you do and work at. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Colleen. The New Testament reading is found in Acts 4, verses 32 through 35. The community of believers was one in heart and mind. None of them would say, this is mine, about any of their possessions, but held everything in common. The apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundance of grace was at work among, among them all. There were no needy persons among them. Those who owned properties or houses would sell them, bring the proceeds from the sales, and place them in the care and under the authority of the apostles. Then it was distributed to anyone who was in need the word of the Lord hi my name is Jill thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew six, twenty-two through 24 the eye is the lamp of the body therefore if your eye is healthy your whole body will be full of light but if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness If then the light in you is darkness, how terrible that darkness will be. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Gospel of the Lord. Please
1: remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we come before you as your kids. And we ask that you would open our ears to hear, you'd open our minds to understand, and open our hearts to receive what it is that you have to share with us today. And we ask that in the process of receiving your grace, you would transform us into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus, for the sake of your kingdom in the earth. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone again, if you're visiting with us this morning, I want to welcome you to New Life Downtown. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life. And a few years ago, my wife Sarah and I got an invitation to go to a family's house for dinner in a church that we were serving uh, back in Oklahoma. And so we get to the church, or we, uh, we get to the neighborhood, and it's a gated community, and we drive up to their house, and we walk inside the door, and there's one of those like two-story libraries with a ladder, and my jaw drops. <laughs> it's like a nerd's dream. And uh, we're walking, you look out to the, through the house, and you see this beautiful infinity pool. And they start taking us around the house into the billiards room, into the movie theater room. And as we're walking around, we have our children with us. And our oldest is five years old at the time, Cora. And as we're walking around, she very loudly, very uncomfortably, and very awkwardly just keeps saying, I can't believe your house. I just can't get over how big it is. I just can't. And we're like trying to do the good parent thing. Like, oh, no, honey, shh. You know, she's like, what? What's the problem? I can't get over it. And just keeps going. Obviously, at that point, we're realizing she's five. And we should have already started to teach her American dinner party etiquette. But there are certain things that you just don't talk about the first time that you go to hang out with some people money, sex, politics, keep them away from these kind of conversations. Uh, But the truth is like there is some wisdom to that, that there is a right time and a right place for difficult or awkward conversations. I think the challenge for us is the tendency is not just to, to confine them to the right places, but to actually ignore them altogether to not talk about those things, except on social media, which is incredibly productive uh, to talk about those things there. The truth is, I think that's also our tendency inside of the church to say, "Ah, oh, let's just not talk about that, that topic or that idea. The really nice thing about kind of preaching through books of the Bible or, through pa- or preaching through passages of the Bible is it keeps us from avoiding passages that we'd rather not talk about keeps us from doing that. kind of forces us to say, hey, this is a time and a place to have these conversations. And so today, as you probably noticed from the readings, we're going to have a conversation this morning about money and possessions. And then you're thinking, oh, I'm so glad I came to church today and not went camping or went and did something else. But I've got really good news for you. If at any point the topic and the conversation, the text make you feel uncomfortable, you can blame it on the lack of air conditioning. And I, like I'm not sweating because this is uncomfortable, sweating because it's 112 degrees inside of the room. Uh, but we, I do want to make a disclaimer before we move into this topic. I recognize that when it comes to having conversations about money in church, it can bring up all sorts of emotions for us. Uh, and some of those can be pretty painful. Uh, either places where we felt uh, an immense amount of guilt around the way that those conversations were handled uh, or immense amount of pain for the way in which finances were misused inside the context of the church so those things i recognize are there my prayer is is that god would be at work in your heart as you experience those emotions the second thing i realize is there's a tendency whenever we talk about money or possessions that our sort of default lenses are to think about them through political parties and economic systems that we begin to think about them in those particular categories. I want to have a conversation today, not about economic systems and political parties, but about Jesus, because I believe that Jesus is the hope of the world, not economic systems and not political parties, that Jesus is the hope, and he's called us as his people to live in a way that brings his kingdom and his hope to bear in the world, And so the conversation is about what does it mean for us as the people of God to live our lives in relationship to this area of our life. Amen? Well, we are in the season right now of Pentecost. Uh, Four weeks ago, we celebrated the coming of the Holy Spirit and to fill and establish the church in the earth. And we are in a series right now called Grow, where we're looking at what the church did after Pentecost. What are the practices that they engaged in that both shaped them as the people of God and sustained them in their identity and mission in the world? So we're, the text really that we're building the whole series off of is a really famous uh, text found in the book of Acts. And it begins this way in Acts 2.42. this right after Pentecost, the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. They devoted themselves. In other words, they gave their full and sustained attention to these things. They focused and filled their lives with the apostles' teaching, With prayer, with shared meals, and with community. This is how they ordered their life together, was around these practices. And so several weeks ago, Pastor Glenn kicked off this series talking about the Apostles' teaching. The week after that, Pastor Evan shared with us about community, about fellowship. And then last week, if you were here, our friend Pete Gregg came and shared with us about prayer. If you haven't heard any of those messages, I encourage you to go on the podcast and go back and listen to them. Next week, Pastor Glenn's going to be back and talk to us about communion, about shared meals, and about the Lord's table. But today what we're going to do is begin to look at how these practices begin to shape their life together. What happened as they devoted themselves to these particular things? And what we notice is in the text that as they devoted themselves, their life together began to take on some very, began to move in some very particular and even peculiar directions. And so we're going to start talking about that today by looking at what happens in Acts 2 44. We read that all the believers those who were devoting themselves to these things were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. A few chapters later, Luke says something very similar in chapter four. In case we missed it the first time, he comes back and says, hey, listen to what the church began to do. He says, the community of believers was one in heart and mind. None of them would say, this is mine, which, of course, just like all of our children, like they never say that phrase at any point in time. But none of them would say, this is mine about any of their possessions, but held everything in common "...the apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and an abundance of grace was at work among them all. There were no needy persons among them. Those who owned property or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds from the sales and place them in the care and under the authority of the apostles, and then it was distributed to anyone who was in need." See, through their devotion, they develop this extraordinary unity amongst themselves that they were all together, that they held everything in common, that they were in one heart and one mind. They actually began to live like family with one another. They lived in very intimate sort of ways, and they began to act toward one another in a way that was common for family, but uncommon for people who weren't biologically related. They began to live in this way. They experienced this deep and profound unity together in Christ that caused them to move from an individual point of view to a communal one. They began to no longer say, this is mine. They began to say, this is ours. Through their mutual devotion, they developed an extraordinary unity. And then out of that unity, they began to practice exceptional Exceptional simplicity. Some of them had accumulated great wealth individually, and they in turn downsized their lives. They sold their extra land and houses not simply to make their life simpler, but they did so for the sake of those in their community. See, they practiced simplicity for the sake of generosity. They didn't downsize to alleviate stress or to make it easier to travel or just to find like a lower maintenance investment that required less cleaning in the course of their lives. No, they simplified in order to give generously. They divested themselves of of assets for the sake of others in the community. They gave the proceeds of all the sales to the apostles, and they distributed it to everyone who was in need, and the text says there was no one needy. Among them, unity, simplicity, and generosity. For me, there are very few passages in the New Testament about the church that are as compelling and as challenging as this one. May I read about this and read about the early church and think, I want to be a part of that. A kind of people that comes together in such a radical way that they actually begin to meet every need inside the community? Who doesn't want to be a part of that? I want in. And then I start to think about it. I think, wait a minute. (laughs) That is a little uncomfortable. We begin to think about the ramifications of that and we recognize that this is so entirely countercultural for us and it seems really, really costly. We live in a culture where we celebrate access and we champion and encourage accumulation. We love things like early retirement and multi-stall garages. It's in many ways how we define something we call the American dream. And so we're not sure that we can go there. If we're really honest, like traditional teachings in the church about giving 10% make us uncomfortable. So this kind of radical generosity makes us feel rather queasy. (laughs) And i are like, I'm not sure. I mean, personally, this is how I feel in the midst of it. going, I want to be a part of that, but I'm not sure. See, because it begins to run in the face of kind of what's hardwired within me. I grew up in kind of an environment when we did talk about finances, it was primarily about taking care of number one. And there was a little bit of fear and there was a little bit of a stress about the future and about whether or not there were to be enough. And even though there was always plenty there was a sense of that there was never enough. And so it sort of built in and wired in me the kind of sense of, well, we've got we to save for, for this crisis. We've got to be prepared for this. And we've got to hoard this and keep what is ours. And so these things begin to really run against that. And so I find in conversations for myself about finances, I find fear and stress and worry and all those things coming up and particularly in places where there's opportunity for generosity. Thankfully, I, though I'm a miser, I married someone who's incredibly generous. (laughs) So she's the voice of the Holy Spirit constantly in our family saying, we're going to be okay. But these passages are so compelling and so challenging. And what's really interesting is that as I began to think about this passage, it's interesting that all of this follows their devotion, So the question I want to kind of wrestle with today is how does devotion to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, and communion lead to this? How is it that out of their devotion to these things, that this began to be the fruit of their lives, that this began to work itself out? I'm going to suggest to you this morning that when we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, what happens is that our minds around these things are reshaped, That when we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, our minds are reshaped. The apostles' teaching is that teaching which is distinctively Christian. It's the teaching that originates with Jesus and is passed down through the apostles to the church and talks about what does it mean to live the Jesus way in the world. And so the early church sort of saturated themselves with Jesus' words in a way that begins to cause them to think differently and then therefore live differently, These are some of the things that Jesus said in these areas. He said, guard yourself against all kinds of greed. After all, one's life isn't determined by one's possessions. Or he said another time there was a rich young ruler who came to him and wanted to know how to experience the fullness of life. And Jesus told him, if you want to be complete, go and sell what you own and give the money to the poor. And the rich young ruler walked away sad, and Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or in that passage we read today in our gospel readings, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Like, Jesus, could you have picked something else? <laughs> like, you can't serve God. And, like, why that there? <laughs> Couldn't you have chosen another one? This idea of loving one and hating another is a Jewish idiom for talking about exclusive loyalty. Recognizing the demands and saying this ex- sort of emphatic way of saying you cannot be fully committed to this and be fully committed to that. And so, Jesus personifies wealth as a God we serve, as a Lord who demands an ultimate commitment from us, as a master who demands a level of devotion that stands in contrast to the devotion that Jesus invites us into. So, Jesus says it's impossible. Literally, we're not able to serve both. It's this kind of idea that led Craig Blomberg, a New Testament professor, to say this. He says, if it's true that we cannot serve both God and money in the sense of making an ultimate commitment to both at the same time, then there is no more telling test of true discipleship than our use of finances. There is no more telling test of true discipleship than our use of finances. So the early church was reshaped around these teachings of Jesus. And I think for the challenge for us is that we actually often reshape the teachings of Jesus around American ideals. That rather than being reshaped by Jesus' words, we reshape Jesus' words around what we want to hear. When I was an undergraduate at a Christian university, I took a class called Personal Financial Planning. So it was at a Christian university talking about finances. And our professor continued to say almost every day, multiple times a day in class, if you live like no one else now, you can live like no one else later. That was the whole press of the class. And the idea was if you live simply and invest wisely, then you can retire early and travel often. He was presenting for us, how is it that we achieve the American dream? How is it that we move into this place? And interesting, the only thing that was in the midst of that conversation that was probably somewhat distinctively Christian was an encouragement to give 10% to the church. However, even in that, the motivation was because then we can get a tax break and a blessing, which will then increase our standard of living, it's sort of looking at that instrumentally rather than missionally, rather than theologically it was simply a way for us to get more. It's like give a little, get more back. This began to be the whole push. And in fact, I don't remember a single time in the class that the poor, the orphan, the widow, or the stranger were mentioned. And yet I rarely find a passage in the Bible about wealth that doesn't include those four groups. See, we begin to sort of reshape Jesus' teachings around our way of life rather than shaping our way of life around Jesus' teaching. Second thing is when we devote ourselves to fellowship, I think what we encounter is that our priorities are reordered. Pastor Evan a couple weeks ago talked about fellowship as being something beyond simply knowing one another, but actually choosing to participate in one another's lives choosing to be intimately engaged with what's happening in each other's world. So in the early church, they not only knew one another's joys and sorrows and hopes and dreams and strengths and faults, victories and failures, they actually devoted themselves to participating in each other's lives, to be intimately involved in what was happening. And with this kind of connection, with this kind of commitment to one another, it began to reorder their priorities where they begin to be concerned not only about themselves and their immediate family, but to be deeply concerned about those that they're in relationship with, to the place that would say, "Hey, they take priority now in my life," in a way that they didn't before, because they had mutually devoted themselves to to each other. They shared whatever they had with those who were in need. A couple of weeks ago, there was a family visiting our church. Uh, and they had an elementary girl, and she walked into her classroom uh, in our kids' ministry and shared with a, another elementary kid, shared with this boy, that her family was having a hard time with money. And shared with him that she was worried that their money was going to run out. And so this little guy went home, and he talked to his parents about it, and he began to sell his toys so he could raise money for her family. And he began to tell his friends about what was happening in this little girl's life. And he came back to church the next week with an envelope that said, for my friend, so her family doesn't run out of money. And inside of it was $26. An elementary school kid participating in her life. Not just knowing she's going through a hard time, but actually voluntarily, sacrificially giving of what he had for the sake of her and her family. And I heard this story like, I want to be him when I grow up. (laughs) Like, I want to live that kind of life that no longer is tight-fisted but open-handed, but that comes out of actually participating in each other's lives, actually knowing one another, knowing one another's needs, and then choosing to participate in each other's life in that kind of way. When we devote ourselves to fellowship, our priorities begin to be reordered. And when we devote ourselves to prayer, we find that our desires are reoriented. The sort of central prayer of the church is the church that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And buried in the middle of that prayer is the line, give us today our daily bread. We say the words often, but Jesus is actually quoting from Proverbs 30 in that prayer. He's calling back and recollecting this prayer that was prayed in Proverbs that says this. It says, two things I ask of you. Don't keep these things from me before I die. Fraud and lies keep far from me. And then don't give me either poverty or wealth. Give me just the food I need. Give me just my daily bread or I'll be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or I'll be poor and steal and dishonor my God's name. See, buried in the, dip, in the depths, in this very center, of the prayer that we prayed even earlier is an echo to this outrageous prayer to don't give me either poverty or wealth. We're really comfortable with the first half of that. Don't give me poverty, I'll pray that prayer all day long don't give me wealth is an uncomfortable and outrageous prayer. But what the prayer does is it begins to foster inside of us right desire. Begins to foster inside of us a desire and a contentment for what is sufficient in our lives, for what it is that we really need. And we live in a culture that promotes the new and the novel over the necessary. We live in a culture that ascribes value and significance to things that we don't need. One advertising executive family said that the entire marketing industry is about the organized creation of dissatisfaction. Creating dissatisfaction in our lives to compel us to go and buy what's new and what's novel over what is necessary. G.K. Chesterton famously said that there are two ways to get enough in life. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. The prayer teaches us what does it mean to desire rightly. Our prayer redirects our desires away from the novel to the eternal. Redirects our desires away away from created things to the creator. This is what those prayers do in our hearts. And when we devote ourselves next into communion, we find that our needs are actually met and our lives are redirected. That as we gather the table, we receive the gift of our prayer. Receive the answer to our prayer. Give us today our daily bread. And we come to the table and receive our daily bread. And we find that we're not only receiving daily bread, but we're receiving actually the body and blood of Christ. We're receiving the grace of the one who can actually meet the deepest needs that we have inside of our hearts. That our needs are actually met at the table as we encounter that God is not only our provider, He is the provision. He is the one who's given himself to us. We receive him, and not only that, that we're also reminded that we too are the body of Christ, redeemed by His blood. We're reminded that we don't live isolated lives; we are members of Christ's family. And we begin to see each other's needs as our own. And our lives are redirected away from self-interested consumption to self-giving, self-sacrificial love. The kind of love that's modeled for us on the cross that we remember when we come to the table. But we have to remember in the midst of all of this that this is only possible through the Holy Spirit who empowers our devotion and inspires our decisions. One of the really, I think, fascinating things to me about this passage is that the early church's acts of simplicity and generosity were not mandated or legislated, they were not required by the government or demanded by church leaders. Instead, through their devotion, they were removed by the Spirit to live in this kind of radical way. And my hope and prayer is that the same would be true for us. That through our devotion, the Spirit would move us and we'd be open to living in ways that don't make sense, in ways that advance God's kingdom on the earth. So as we're moving forward this morning maybe you're sensing that the Spirit is moving in you. There's something about this that's both compelling and challenging, but wanting to move more to the compelling and away from the challenging aspect of it. I want to encourage us in four ways this morning. First, I want to encourage us to continue to present ourselves to God's Spirit through study, community, communion, and prayer. To continue to devote ourselves to the things the church has always devoted themselves to. But specifically, to really grapple with what the Bible has to say about finances. To not simply reshape the words around our ideals, but to allow our ideals to be reshaped by the text. To really grapple with what's being said. And I want to encourage, if you're looking for a book to help you in that, Craig Blomberg has a book called Christians in an Age of Wealth. It's incredible and kind of unpacking Jesus's teachings around these ideas. I want to encourage us to live in community with one another. If you find yourself in an isolated place within the context of church, lean in to community, and not just knowing other people, but choosing to participate in each other's lives in a way that thrusts us out toward generosity. I want to encourage us to keep coming to the table and to find our needs met by Jesus. And lastly, encourage us to continue to pray that family prayer, but with the boldness of Proverbs 30. Give me neither poverty or wealth and see how God begins to reorder our desires and see what he might do out of that. Secondly, I want to encourage us to ask ourselves hard questions. In the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned that there are conversations that are difficult for us to have, that we'd rather avoid. There are questions that we'd, choose not to, we'd rather choose not to ask ourselves, things that we'd rather not think about and wrestle with. But I think it's important that we begin to ask ourselves questions about the things that God's given us to steward and asking, are we using all that God's given us for all of its kingdom potential? And to ask, maybe there's something that we have too of or too much of that we might begin to sell in order to meet needs that we see in the people around us. Or maybe we've been to ask ourselves, what are things that we could actually do without? That we've been become convinced that we need, that actually we could do without. And then in six months, I think we have to ask those questions again. There's a tendency inside to ask the questions once And the truth is the gravitational pull of our culture invites us to actually continue to reflect, to give the full and sustained devotion to these kinds of things so that our lives might gradually be reshaped into the image and likeness of Jesus. Sarah and I have these conversations periodically and realizing even this week as we're walking through this text and moving into our home and wrestling with all sorts of financial decisions we need to continue to talk about them to have hard conversations and ask hard questions. But thirdly, to remember to do, as we're doing so, to remember that our God is a gracious God, All right? God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he wants to have a conversation with his kids. This is the life he's inviting us into. Sometimes when we begin to have these conversations, I feel a little bit like Clark Griswold in National Lampoon's Crucification when he pulls out that big ball of tangled Christmas lights. Anybody seen that? So he's wanting to decorate his whole house with, you know, 100,000 twinkling lights, and he pulls out, and they're just all knotted and tied together. And there's a sense when we talk about these issues, that they're so complicated, there's so many pieces, it feels so knotted together that, like his son, we just want to walk away. I got bills to pay, I got, you know, pig to take care of, got homework to do. We just want to walk away from the conversation. But I think God's inviting us graciously to say, hey, let's slowly untangle this knot together and to see how it is that our lives might shine a little brighter as we continue to think through how he might be inviting us to participate with his kingdom in this area of our life. And to know that there are challenges related to long life in our culture and healthcare costs in our culture and living well beyond the age of retirement. We've got things that we have to wrestle with but let's wrestle through them with God's grace being reshaped by the apostles' teaching and continually being transformed by the Spirit. And then lastly, I would ask you today that as the Spirit inspires you, as He inspires us in the midst of these conversations, that we would trust our generous God and that we would give generously as He leads as he leads us and he inspires us, that we would give generously for the sake of his kingdom. And as we remember that he is not only a gracious God, he is a generous God. And we see that probably more, no more clearly displayed than here at the table. Where not only does he give us his daily bread, but he gives us himself, his whole life. He's sacrificed for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that we serve a generous, abundant, and bountiful God. And the hope is that as we draw near to him and spend time with the generous Jesus, that we ourselves would be transformed by his generosity, and we would start to look more like him in our lives, and we'd find it easier to trust and easier to give because of who our good father is. Amen?